We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. We're supporting Ukraine, right? But we're not at war in Ukraine. And yet you get a ton of people who run around saying, we're at war in Ukraine. Why are we at war? Why are we fighting it? We're not. And yet all these people run around and say that we are. Well, the government needs to say, we are not at war, which is exactly what it did during Lend-Lease in 1941. They said, we are not at war. We're supporting this country so that it doesn't get conquered with material, but we are not at war. Where can the government push back against all these people who say, we're at war in Ukraine. It's our war. Because, you know, the point is that there's zero cost to saying the dumbest shit on social media or to liking and retweeting the dumbest shit, you know, so giving approval to the dumbest shit. There's zero cost. And you can say, well, okay, what if it was the Trump government? Should they do it? Yes. Yes. The Trump government should absolutely do this. Make your damn case to the people. There's this idea that our government should simply stand back as this neutral party in the marketplace of ideas and just kind of be this neutral arbiter while everyone else fights it out. Free speech, yay. Which means you have the government of China versus like, you know, a couple professors and grad students in their spare time. And the government of China is like, America is causing the war in Ukraine. And then, you know, like a couple little professors like, well, well no, it's not. You know, here's some history lessons about why Russia invaded like three likes, you know, and then Chinese government sponsors stuff is like, America evil. Welcome to Econ 102, where economist Noah Smith and I make sense of what's happening in the news, technology, business, and beyond through the lens of economics. Let's jump right in. Noah. Great to, great to see you as always. Welcome back from Singapore. Yes, I am back. From Singapore and <laughs> we, Ireland. Yeah, yeah. We, we talked a little bit about Ireland in the last episode. So why don't we uh, start by uh, getting into, into Singapore and some of your, your reflections, uh, thoughts from a visit to a, the solar punk city, as, uh, as your piece said. Why don't we uh, yes. well, unpack some stuff there? You know, what's, what's interesting is that, that, you know, each year I'm going to, I'm trying to see two new countries per year. That's my thing now because I'm, I'm so poorly traveled uh, in life. So I'm trying to see at least two new countries per year. And then for the last two years, the, the first two years that I've done this, the countries actually had some sort of connections that I didn't anticipate. So, um, you know, last year I went to uh, Netherlands and Taiwan and I found out that there's lots of people with scooters in both places and people are really laid back and tolerant in both places. And both places have one giant semiconductor company that they rely on. And, um, and so that was kind of interesting. Um, oh, also, uh, uh, Netherlands ruled over Taiwan for a little while back in the day. Um, but then this year I went to Ireland and Singapore and I found out that they're both small countries with economies, uh, small, extremely rich countries with economies driven very heavily by foreign direct investment, uh, for which they do lots of, uh, high skilled immigration to support that, uh, foreign direct investment. Interesting. I guess that didn't really tell you anything about Singapore, but it was an interesting fact that I did, uh, <laughs> you know, uncover an interesting parallel is that basically why is Singapore so rich? Cause they get a bunch of FDI, 
right? That's like, that's, uh, you know, America uses Singapore as their gateway to Asia. American companies use Singapore as the gateway to Asia the same way they use Ireland as the gateway to Europe. Like if you're going to sell stuff to Asia, in Asia, you know, software, for example, or maybe biopharma stuff, uh, Singapore is a great place to, to do that from. And well, Ireland, why is that? sell to Europe, Ireland's a great place. Is it location? Is it uh, sort of their openness yeah. to it? Or, you know, what a... Yeah, both. both. Yeah, location is a big part of it. Um, <clears throat> you know, Ireland is in the EU. It's got some connections to Europe. Singapore is in, in Asia. It's like got a large... Uh, um, well, anyway, they, they've got lots of connections to Asia. And so, yeah, yeah it's really just that. Um, but yeah, Singapore, solar punk city. You know, cyberpunk is a genre of science fiction and sort of a... Uh, a um, sort of standard fantasy world that you can go to, right? You know what the, who the cyberpunk characters are going to sort of be, what the whole milieu is going to be, kind of, right? It's, it's like, you know, like high fantasy, you know, you're going to have swords and sorcery and dragons, wizards in like space opera, you know, you're going to have like spaceships and aliens and, and whatever. And then um, in cyberpunk, you know, you're going to have like these, you know, big corporations and like, bio modifications and like hackers and, and whatever. Right. So, um, <clears throat> solar punk is none of those. Solar punk isn't a fiction genre at all. It's really just a design idea and no one can really articulate what the design idea is, but, uh, I think plants on buildings is kind of the, uh, you know, the consensus of what that means. But, but basically solar punk is a kind of word that we use to try to imagine a future of abundant energy where technology allows us to integrate more closely with nature. So technology, you know, in its early stages, basically you control nature, you chop up some trees, you dig up some coal, you pour concrete over a lot of natural beauty. Right. And so it's sort of like you get this, this, you know, man against nature, sort of like mid 20th century idea. And then, um, or even 19th century idea. And then, um, with solar punk, the idea is technology gets so good, so complex that we can integrate the organic and the uh, and the mechanical, right? The the greenery and the machinery, we can integrate them. And so, and of course, plants on buildings one way that manifests because you have like you know living uh, tissue or whatever grafted right onto like inorganic stuff, and it it works because there's some technology that's making it. Uh, in Singapore, there's not actually a technology that's making it work. The technology is called gardeners and landscapers, lots and lots and lots and lots of landscapers. And so Singapore is insanely rich, and that's why it can pay a ton of landscapers to take care of these buildings with plants all over them. And you'll also notice that although the whole city is filled with plants, actually, it's not just on buildings. The plants are everywhere. You know, there's parks, there's trees and just bushes and flowers and everything everywhere. Massive amounts of greenery in Singapore, which is all intentional. You know, it didn't used to be like that. They, they planted all that stuff. But you might think there would be a lot of bugs, right? Because it's right on the equator. It's, you know, 87 degrees Fahrenheit every day, uh, you know, all year round. It's, um, you might expect there to be massive amounts of bugs. But there's not because Singapore just burns and destroys every bug on the island, right? They just spray insane amounts of pesticide over everything and, and just, you know with with great zeal destroy everywhere bugs might hide and just <laughs> cost a lot of money it's it, it looks like everything's abundant and uh you know some things are abundant but really singapore is just really really damn rich so maybe that's the, the secret to solar punk is that when we all get insanely insanely rich in the future we'll be able to live more in harmony with nature without getting mosquito bites all over us <laughs> 
what what are the lessons that uh, America or other countries can learn from Singapore? What I hear is that they're particularly good at integrating different uh, sort of eth- ethnic groups, um, or you know, sort of managing or handling diversity. And then they also, I think, there's a lot we can learn on healthcare. Is what I hear that they have a pretty good uh, health because they sort of combine private and public healthcare in a way that is like the best of both worlds, whereas we do it in a way that's the worst of both worlds. Are either of those things accurate or what would your sort of assessment be on what the world, what we or the world can learn from Singapore? Well, in terms of the things you mentioned, uh, racial immigration, that, it's interesting because the most important policy that Singapore does is the housing policy. Um, almost everybody lives in a house that they bought from the government or a house they bought from someone else who bought that house from the government. And so, um, however, Singapore manages who can live where. Uh, so they have the buildings all have basically diversity quotas. And so you have a mix of, of the, the three races living in every building. The, the, you know, the, the three official races of, of Singapore or the three ethnicities, let's say. The three official ethnicities are like uh, Chinese, Tamil, and Malay. So you basically got Chinese descended people, um, uh, um, you know, South Indian descended people, and then Malay people, which is actually, that's sort of a, a category that includes a whole bunch of people from around that region, um, Malaysians, Austronesians, and, and, you know, a number of different people. So they have, you know, it's, it's basically, uh, you know, forced integration of how, of where you live. Um, but as for whether or not that produces social integration, um, they, they have other things they do too. Like, like in schools, they'll make kids dress up in like traditional costumes of other races. It's like, uh, you know, forced cultural appropriation, but, um, it's interesting because until fairly recently, this didn't actually integrate people. The, the races of Malaysia, uh, not Malaysia, of Singapore were, were poorly integrated in terms of, you know, Chinese people would marry each other Chinese people. Malay people would marry other Malay people, blah, blah, blah. There wasn't as much social mingling between the races, even though there was sort of uh, residential, forced residential integration and other things like that. Um, recently, we've started to see a ton more intermarriage in Singapore. So intermarriage has finally become a big thing. And so the boundary lines between these different communities uh, has started to actually blur now. That, that, that's interesting. Um, and, and how about the healthcare? Yeah, Singapore's healthcare is not, you know, um, it's, um, it's, it's not too different really than other Asian countries, right? It's... Um, the government pays for a lot of stuff and then you have to pay for some of the stuff. It's like, if you look at any successful healthcare system in the world, that's what it's going to be like. You know, the government pays for some stuff and then you have to pay for the other stuff. And um, Singapore healthcare is very cheap. I do not know why it is cheap. I do not know. I assume that the national health insurer just drives prices down by negotiating prices down. So it's effective price controls. I do not know why I'm, you know, I don't actually know if that is what they do, but that's what they do in like Japan, Korea, um, just a lot of places. So it's not too uncommon. Singapore, I don't think it has a secret sauce in terms of healthcare that other countries don't have. It's like the United States just has secret crappy sauce, right? (laughs) Um, We just have especially terrible uh, healthcare. Um, because our healthcare is based on driving up cost by pretending like nobody's paying for it and then having someone out of sight pay a hell of a lot of money and just get overcharged. What are other things you think we could, we can learn from Singapore? Well, I think the most important thing is the housing, housing, 
Absolutely. Because, um, so what Singapore does is basically they, um, what they effectively do is they have the government, the government owns all the land, then it builds houses and then it sells you the houses, it sells you apartments, right? And the apartments, you don't own the land underneath the apartments. So it's like a condo, right? When you, when you have a condo, you have voting rights in the condo association, but you don't own the land under your condo. Uh, right. And so then, um, you own the condo structure itself, the right to live in that structure, but you don't own the land, the right to redevelop the land. And that's basically what Singapore does with these, these apartments, um, called HDB apartments for the housing development board. Um, essentially now, now people advocates of public housing are keen to point out that in fact, Singaporeans do not own their homes in the HDBs. What they actually own is a 99-year lease on the homes. That is pointless and actually was a mistake by the government of Singapore because the 99-year lease doesn't do anything. I mean, if you, you could say, oh, well, if the 99-year lease, you could, if you want to redevelop it, you can wait 99 years and then redevelop it. Well, A, that's way too long to have to wait 99 years to develop something that's even worse than San Francisco, all right? Or even like 40 years, that's even worse than SF. So, but it's not, it's not so you could develop that land more easily because the, remember the government already owns all the land. Maybe you have a lease here, but the government can redevelop that land any day it wants. And, um, and also, because these are, leases are in giant buildings, if one, one, the leases aren't all up at the same time. So therefore, if the government wants to redevelop it, it's gonna have to redevelop it even though some people's leases aren't up. So in other words, the 99 year lease thing does nothing right? It should just be permanent ownership that you can resell, um, but the, where the government can redevelop the land if it wants to. That's what it should be. Instead, they have this 99-year lease thing where you sell your lease and then blah, blah, blah. The point is it hasn't been 99 years since Singapore's founding, so no one has actually seen their lease terminate yet. So no one's actually been arbitrarily kicked out of their house because their house happens to be owned for only 99 years and suddenly you have to move tomorrow. That's never happened yet, but it will. Uh, because the government sort of made a mistake with this 99-year lease thing. Um, but that said, the practice of having the government build a ton of houses and sell houses cheaply to first-time homebuyers is extremely good. That's a good idea. The government, um, one great thing about the government building housing supply is that it can do it counter-cyclically, right? Do you know what that means, counter-cyclically? I did teach you this at one point. Remind me, that was a long time ago. <laughs> It means, yes, true. It means you can do it in a recession, right? So in a recession, home builders go bust and they stop building homes. But the government doesn't go bust. The government can just keep building homes. And so you can use that to provide jobs in a recession. And you can use it to build housing when no one else is building housing. So you can keep the rate of home building pretty steady. And so um, that's one great thing about government building housing. Another thing is, you know, when the government owns the land and can make the rules about how the land is used, you don't really have NIMBY problems. Right. Because the government's like, I'm going to build on this land. And NIMBY's like, no, no, I'll sue you. And the government's like, what? You can't sue me. I just made a rule that said, you can't sue me. So guess what? Get lost. I'm building this apartment building. And then they do. And so the, the, um, that works. Get around the NIMBYs. And so you have uh, government building, apartment buildings. Um, so the government is YIMBY. Right. And, uh, and then, um, Yeah. So it's, it's a really great system because uh, people who buy their first home from the HDB, from the government, and they pay a very low price for it, they get, um, they get to build their wealth because when they resell it later, if they resell it, 
the price goes up from the price, the, the subsidized price they bought it at. In other words, it's basically giving money to young people. It's allowing young people to save more money than they would by basically subsidizing their savings in their house vehicle, right? And the third thing that, that the system does is it allows the government to basically control price of housing by controlling supply and demand. So if housing, the whole bunch of people flood into the city and housing gets real expensive, like it did in San Francisco, um, and it's, you know, it's pretty expensive in Singapore, but if, if it gets really expensive, Singapore can just build a million more houses. But if, you know, people are flooding out of the city and the, the rents are crashing, blah, 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 um, or the, the house prices are crashing, I have to say, Singapore can just stop building housing for a while. So the prices go back up. So it can really, it can control price by controlling supply. So that's another thing about the, this system is highly effective. It's not perfect. There's some problems with it besides just the stupid 99 year lease thing, but there, there's some problems with it. Um, but honestly, it's a system that more countries should copy. That's a good overview on, on housing. What about their approach to crime? Obviously, they're, they're very tough on, on crime and, and certain minor infractions even. Um, you know, there's been, the, with, with sort of El Salvador's policy, um, you know, being extremely harsh, harsh on crime and, and, and seeing the results of that, which is a lot of the crime seems to have, have gone away. There are some people that think that that is a proof point of, of, of that model. What, what are your thoughts on sort of the the tough on crime approach or the Singapore approach, my, my characterization and, and, and the outcomes of, of such policy. I mean, the tough on crime approach works incredibly well if you're willing to commit to it, right? If you just say, okay, deal drugs, you die. Well, then you, you kill a lot of the people who are dumb enough to still do drugs. Like you scare other people into not doing drugs. And of course, you know, a lot of crime is downstream from drug sales, right? You have uh, drug dealers basically fighting each other over a turf and whatever. So you don't have that. You've seen the wire, right? It's like that. And so you don't have that at all. And so uh, tough on crime will absolutely work if you're willing to commit to it. The problem is you're going to have to, I mean, you know, El Salvador has just put like a large fraction of its population in giant prisons. Are you willing to do that? And then to have like massive police presence, like what we're seeing in San Francisco right now for the, for the APEC summit where they cleaned up APEC just for Xi Jinping. Um, <laughs> but I want to ask you what you made yeah, of that. They, uh, it's, it's like that, but for, it's like that for a whole country. But like, are you willing to tolerate that? Like, or will you feel like you're living in a police state? Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. Let's talk about that for a second. So I think a lot of people are surprised by the level of cleanup that SF, San Francisco has just done because we didn't know we had it in us. <laughs> like, we didn't know it was possible. And now people are, are seeing that. They're saying, hey, why isn't this happening all the time? Because we make a choice for it not to happen. Um, one reason is because the powers that be think that, you know, downtown is for a bunch of techies at their stupid offices. Um, techies are annoying because they're the reason that rich people came to live in the city. They're the reason rents have gone up. So we're going to annoy them by not cleaning up crime and let, let the homeless at them. <laughs> Let's say I like that. <laughs> um, and that's, that's kind of the thought process of some, that that's making the, opening, top. By the way. um, <laughs> them, them techies come and ruin in our town, you know, <laughs> buying up all the apartments and, you know, eating at their bougie little restaurants. No, <laughs> you know, well, <laughs> let's let the homeless at them. Yeehaw! It's, um, imagine if, uh, you know, San Francisco were just run by the like most ridiculous like small town Texans you've ever met. 
yeah, then exactly. that is what they'd be saying. <laughs> In fact, we should do this as a bit. We should just have like Texan Aaron Peskin. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, housing, we should build all the affordable housing, just not in the marina where my voters live. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a, uh, yeah, it's funny. It, it matches the accent to the, the, the substance. Because this is like Texans will just come out and say that they'll do all the same shit, right? And they'll just say it outright. They'll be like, well, you know, Y- y'all don't want homeless living near y'all, right? Y'all want homeless living near the people y'all don't like. And like that's, they'll just say that, you know, very plain spoken people. And then San Francisco people will be like, no, new housing raises rents. Really, guys? Like, yep. you know, like property is not so important that you'd want to protect it with violent force because, because violence is worse than property crime. So you've got to let all the property crime happen. And then, they come up with these like, you know, just just brain squeezing, like, you know, leftist sounding justifications to do basically right wing stuff. Yeah. Zooming out um, or this is an interesting segue because, you know, in the other week we talked about Mark Andreessen's techno optimist uh, sort of manifesto and areas where we uh, where we overlap and areas where, you know, we maybe maybe differ. Th- this week you wrote a couple of pieces on sort of the flip side of that, which is um, sort of potential dystopias and why it's worth worth calling those out. Um, one you alluded to, uh, or you reposted a piece you made uh, a few years ago, which is how this, this concern that tech, um, while it could bring amazing things, it could also lead to more totalitarianism uh, uh, globally. Um, and you also sketched out a few possible progressive dystopias. Um, why don't you uh, get into some of that? Absolutely. Um, so... Uh, there's this book called The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, which a lot of people read, and which China did a whole mini series about. Um, but it's by it, it's this history book that said that the powerful countries were the ones who were able to take advantage of new technological revolutions. So you know, in um, obviously Britain, whatever, blah blah. blah. In the, in the 20th century, uh, you know, the the most powerful countries were the ones that were able to manufacture. You know, Russia wasn't able to manufacture consumer goods very efficiently, but they were able to manufacture a lot of tanks, right? And then America was able to manufacture a ton of stuff and and Japan to, you know, to a lesser degree was able to do that. And those countries ended up becoming much more powerful. Well, countries that didn't, weren't, couldn't harness these manufacturing technologies as effectively, uh, such as, you know, Britain and France uh, declined a bit from the power that they had had before. And where countries that couldn't manufacture at all uh, you know, just didn't, they were just very weak. And so there's this idea that um, that's what determines who is a powerful country. And so if you look at modern technology, we've had a number of new things, but two new things that we had are social networks and AI, right? And so if you look at the effect of social networks on politics, you see that they cause great instability Um, so right now on Twitter, the dumbest imaginable shit gets tens of thousands of retweets while sensible things debunking it get just a few dozen retweets. And it's, it's been like that for as long as I can remember, but I think it's even worse now. And then on TikTok, there, where there's not even any pushback, um, you know, the dumbest stuff just goes absolutely viral. So, you know, some woman's face with the text over it saying all this aid to Israel. Imagine if we reinvested it in our own communities, Right. And so, uh, of course, that that's stupid. It would produce like nil effect. 
if you reinvest that money in your own communities. But because um, so incredibly small, but people still say this stuff anyway. So there's an argument that social networks lead to unrest, that, that discussion and prop on Twitter and propaganda on TikTok will lead to unrest, will lead to chaos, the dissolution of the government, the fall of the nation state ultimately. But in China, where they control social media very actively, maybe it won't. You know, maybe uh, maybe that's the key to successful civilization. So so in the maybe in the age of the printing press, you know, where where large monopolistic companies could eventually dominate and sort of control messaging and information, you know, in the service of, if not good, at least social stability, right? Maybe the New York Times wants social stability and not because that's how they sell more New York Times. Um, but now in the social media age, everyone just wants to say the most extreme shit possible to get clicks. And this extreme shit ends up radicalizing everybody. And so therefore, uh, this, maybe the shift from um, newspapers, television, radio to um, online, to, to social media sites of news and discussion, maybe this foments chaos in countries that don't control their social media. In countries that don't control their social media, those are called democratic countries. So maybe social media naturally just foments chaos and destroys democracy. So that's one thing. Now AI, um, obviously AI is going to, you know, in America, we're going to use it for all sorts of applications. In China, one of the big applications they're using it for, which they call smart cities, by the way, is um, one of the big applications they're using it for is social control. So you go to Xinjiang, where the Uyghurs live, and it's like a giant well, open air prison where people are constantly checked and rechecked and the faces check them and blah, blah, blah. And they, they like, they look into their house and see what exactly what people are doing. And, and this is currently, you know, somewhat low tech, but they're trying to replace this with AI as fast as they can. So you can imagine, easily imagine a future where AI just polices everybody all the time. AI with ubiquitous sensors and the internet, right? Just polices everybody all the time. And so the question is, is, yeah, and, and, you know, there's also this argument that AI is not this sort of technology that you can spin up in your basement, right? You need like tons of GPUs, server clusters, a lot of money. Uh, it's pretty capital intensive. And so there's this idea that AI uh, will be a tool of totalitarian social control. So my post was actually not arguing that either of these is, is true, is obviously true. Instead, what I was arguing is that either one might be true and we can't rule it out yet. We may, the, the combination of social media and AI may have thrust us into a world where, um, you know, governments are just completely unable to prevent this sort of chaos. And so, or, or democratic governments are, are completely unable to prevent chaos. And then authoritarian governments get a boost in their attempt to create a social order. So it could be that together, social media sites and AI will lead to a dystopia, techno dystopia. It's really interesting. Do you ever read The Sovereign Individual? No. Yeah. So, so yeah, an old book, really eccentric, quirky book. And, you know, Apology loves it. Peter Thiel loves it. The sort of idea um, that, um, you know, it was kind of the intellectual inspiration for charter cities in a way, sort of that the world is going to become much more sort of market oriented and that will extend at the level of even cities. And But one of the things that, or the theories that it posits is that sort of the, he, he's, the author says that there's this logic of violence. And, and basically, if technology is is uh, sort of, there's certain technologies that are more centralizing, that give more power to uh, sort of, you know, governments, 
uh, to control their um, their people. And there, there are some technologies that are more decentralizing that give more powers to the citizens to defend themselves against uh, against government. And there was this idea that that maybe AI would be more centralizing and maybe crypto would be more decentralizing. It's actually maybe a bit more complicated with you know CBDCs um, and you know some of the capabilities that AI gives the the average person. Um, and 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 yeah, there's always it's just kind of a nuanced conversation. It's it's unclear uh, as to whether um, you know these technologies will will become more more centralizing or decentralizing. And in some ways, maybe it's both. Maybe it's a barbell where the 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 incumbents get stronger and it's more centralized on, on, on one side, but also there's just more countries or there's more, you know, there's more long tail. That, that's what kind of happens with, with music or with- So with, consider uh, what happens if you have the, the centralizing, um, centralizing technologies be specialized to autocracies and the decentralizing technologies be specialized to democracies, right? So suppose that in democracies, you basically, by giving- you know, every single teenager and foreign teenager and whatever, the ability to dunk on top journalists, you force top journalists to have the opinions of the Twitter mob. Right. And that's decentralizing. Yes. But ultimately it is, it is a recipe for anarchy and, and public dysfunction, public institutional and government dysfunction. And then on the, but then, you know, the, uh, suppose the autocracies don't have that because they just don't allow the technology. Right. Like, Oh, decentralized. Well, fuck that. I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'm going to maintain central centralization. And so then suppose they do AI and suppose AI is adapted, not just AI as a centralizing technology, but AI is adapted for use in autocracies because only an autocracy would have an AI look in your window and make sure you're not praying to Mecca any time of the day, all day. And so, so perhaps uh, in addition to cent centralizing and decentralizing, we can think about whether technologies are, more easily used by the normal people or the unscrupulous bad people who just want to control someone else. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. I saw Balaji in Singapore. Oh, wow. Balaji lives in Singapore. Yeah, I saw him there. Oh, it's great. We still have to get Balaji here at, at some point. Uh, it's, uh, it's amazing. We do, if we can. Yeah. Let, let's also segue to your other piece where you imagine a few different progressive dystopias um, so we can talk about how to potentially prevent them or some of the downsides right. with that. So this goes to my other podcast, Hexapodia, in which Brad DeLong and I were discussing, um, you know, some pushback against uh, leftists. And um, some of the pushback, the pushback or leftists and just other, and just, you know, progressives that maybe you think went too far. And the pushback, you know, came from people like Brianna Wu, Matt Iglesias, Ezra Klein, people like that. One thing that Brad and I argued about, uh, Brad was talking about progressives being, you know, sort of utopians who either use tactics that backfire or tactics that or, or choose to bite off more than they can chew and go all the way to utopia when the normies are only ready to go halfway or a third of the way or something like that. So you have pragmatism. So it's utopianism versus pragmatism. Do I believe in using pragmatic methods or do I believe in, you know, like only just being totally pure? And this is a common theme you see discussed on the left, right? You see purity politics versus elect, you know, do we want to get elected by peeling off the moderates or do we want like to purify everybody, uh, you know, to have the ideologically pure candidates so our, so our, um, our base turns out, right? You see this all the time. But um, <clears throat> I said, no, I said, yeah, okay, there is some of that going on, okay? But in addition, we have reached the point where we have multiple groups of progressives who actually want 
um, you know, things that most people would consider dystopian, where it's not just a question of you're overzealous in your, um, you know, in your pursuit of, of something good, right? You're actually pursuing something bad now. And so I enumerated a few of these and not all of these, in fact, but a few of these, for example, uh, degrowth, right? It's this idea that we'll save the environment by, um, by halting economic growth in rich countries. Well, no, we, A, we won't, right? That will not work for many reasons. But then, you know, B, it would require the impoverishment of just tons of people. And, uh, and of course, to actually make a big dent in climate change, you need to do degrowth in poor countries too, because they produce the majority of the emissions. Um, you need to do that too. Um, and then that would just really, like, do you really think you're going to be able to have some, like, Swedish degrowth professor walking to India and saying, well, actually you need to, you know, you need to stop economic growth. I can't do a Swedish accent, but, but or you can have some, some North European, you know, Greta Thunberg or somebody just like go to, um, you know, walk into India and say, guys, you can't get non-poor. You've got to stay poor so the planet can live. No, they'll just be immediately, you know, thrown in a tar pit and <laughs> go to India and say that. So that's why, um, you know, that's why degrowth de just isn't going to fly, right? The only way to decarbonize uh, the globe is to create alternative technologies, green technologies that are so cheap that everyone just adopts them out of pure economic self-interest and we save the planet anyway. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Like that's, and so, and so degrowth is a progressive utopia. Oh yeah. Another progressive di uh, dystopia is this idea of, Settler decolonization. So as I understood it, and as we all understood it, decolonization meant countries like India throwing off the yokes of their imperial oppressors. Yay, countries are free. But then there's some countries like America, whatever, or Australia that were settled during the age of European colonialism, where a bunch of Europeans just moved there, had kids, drove out the locals, claimed whatever land, and, and then just you know made their own country there. That's how this worked. And so the idea is you're a settler colonialist. So the idea of settler decolonization here is that this gets passed on, right? The idea is if you're descended from, you know, Irish people or Italian people who came here, you know, to land that was not quote unquote theirs, then the people who quote unquote own the land collectively as a race have the right to drive you off. And this is an idea that you see is incredibly common in progressive circles now. And yet, what is this actually? This is actually just ethnic cleansing, right? This is saying that these people own this, these people own this land because they were here first. They get to ethnically cleanse you and kick you off. Uh, and, you know, even if neither of you actually stole the land or had it stolen from them, we are the same people by virtue of race, by virtue of blood and nose shape, right? The idea that if you're a, a Native American living in, I don't know, Oklahoma today, then you are in racially connected to the people whose land was stolen. And this gives you the right to take it back because you are racially similar. Um, I don't like this idea. I think that's a dystopian idea because it encourages races of people to fight over land and to establish competing territorial claims. And what it does is it abolishes the idea that countries should be fixed in place, right? It abolishes this idea that we have these borders and we're going to try to keep these borders, even if they're not, fair, we're going to keep these borders so pe nobody has to move en masse and be evicted as like refugees en masse, right? So that's what we've done since World War II. And uh, we've even done a pretty good job of making sure 
borders are more or less inviolate. And that's one reason everyone's mad at Russia, because Russia uh, violated that norm by invading someone else and trying to take them over. So I think so that's another, another dystopia is this idea that whoever is racially affiliated with the native population of a place, indigenous population of a place, i.e. the last conqueror who didn't write down their conquests in a book, right? Um, but whoever's indigenous should be able to just kill and expel and ethnic cleanse all the people who are of a non-indigenous race. And to me, that is psychotic. That's like, you know, Hitler city. It's called irredentism, this idea that, you know, you're upset about every historical piece of territory that your empire, you know, your country used to control and doesn't control now. So you're going to go to war over this tiny little, you know, piece of territory. Um, anyway, so that's that's sort of a dystopia. I'm trying to remember what was my what was my third dystopia. I always don't under, I always get confused by people who are pro immigration, but then anti the kind of, uh, you know, immigration by the wrong people, whether it's gentrify, they call them gentrifiers, they call them colonizers. How do you square that that circle, right? I mean, you can, you know, some people want to have selective gated communities, right? <laughs> like you're like, well, we only want to let the, uh, you know, the rich people in, or we only want to let, like Canada's like, we only want to let the smart people in, right? They're not only, but their immigration system is heavily biased towards skilled workers. And so Singapore certainly is very biased. Uh, Singapore, all the, like the poor people are just guest workers, non-residents who could be kicked out at will, uh, you know. While the while in terms of permanent residents, they want to bring smart knowledge workers, and so they're very deliberate about this. So you can have a gated community and basically say this community, gated community, is run for the benefit of the people who created this gated community, or you know, or you can yeah. So so basically, a lot of people want to create gated communities, and there's lots of concepts as to who you'd want in your community. Yeah, is um, is gentrification bad for the city? Like, talk about the impacts of gentrification. Like, who does it help and who does it hurt? Well, you know, a lot of studies show that the, the idea of gentrification of, of rich people basically moving into a neighborhood and pushing poor people out, it is real. It is a thing that happens, but it's actually less common than people think. And by far, the more common thing is neighborhoods that die because everyone's moving away. Right. Uh, so so if you want to help struggling places, the idea of poor people getting gentrified out by these rich people who come into their neighborhoods and gentrify them is actually a pretty minor threat compared to Poor people who just never, you know, no one wants to live there at all. So the problem with gentrification is that um, it's it's often used as an excuse to stop development, which often hurts the far greater number of places that are are decaying because you can't do new development, so you can't sort of rebuild these places. Being anti-development will will hurt these places, and it won't really protect places that are gentrifying either, right? Because it turns out that the development doesn't really drive gentrification. Yuppies don't move to a place because it has a nice new yuppie building, unless they move there to live in the building and it exists. But the reason yuppies move to, you know, places is because they're hip, they're cool. Yuppies can feel bohemian. You know, you can be around poor people and, you know, feel authentic that way. I don't know, whatever culture. And so that's, that's why gentrification, when it does happen, that's a reason why it happens. Also, people being pushed out of the city center looking for somewhere cheaper to live, right? They're rich. They're richer than the people in the place that they're moving to, but they're not that rich. And they're getting priced out of some more central location. So this whole idea that you can sort of protect these local traditional communities by stopping development and that'll stop gentrification is completely misguided on a number of levels. That, that makes sense. And, and so when people are worried about like when they say a, a place is getting colonized, like what exactly are they referring to there? 
I mean, that's just a word people throw around. Like once, you know, the, the 2010s had a lot of uh, leftist stuff being used to justify political things. And now we, that sort of just become a tick throughout our society. Just saying like, oh, you're, you're colonizing me to whatever people do, you know? Oh, I, you moved in next door to the like, you know, house that someone sold you next door. You're colonizing me. You build an apartment building. It's colonialism. I mean, it's like, no, no, it isn't. That's a stupid wrong thing that you said. And you said it on social media for attention. And even if you got attention, that doesn't make what you said right. Totally. Um, so the other two things that you mentioned in that piece were one, the, the NIMBY uh, vision, uh, you know, not building enough houses that we've, we've covered a little bit. And then also the, the hollowing out of the education system, i.e., you know, making sure everyone is equally educated or equally uneducated, as opposed to being ambitious in terms of up-leveling, uh, you know, the, the people who, who need it. Yeah. So, um, uh, those are two definite dystopias that we are sort of facing right now. We're especially facing the NIMBY dystopia. That one's kind of already happened. Like we've seen what happens when you refuse to build new housing. Um, in terms of the education thing, there's been a lot of pushback against it. There's basically like the, the progressive educational ideas championed by this woman named Joe Bowler at Stanford is, is essentially that if you, um, that you can further equity by teaching kids less math, which is now metastasized into sort of like teaching kids less reading. So you can teach by teaching people less, you can reduce education gaps. It's like, it's like, um, taxing people until everyone's equally poor to create equality. Right. It's like preventing everyone from learning math until everyone's equally ignorant of math. And then we've closed achievement gaps. Yay. But it turns out that doesn't work. And why doesn't it work? It doesn't work because the students who would have done well in math class are just the students with parents who prepared them. And those people still have the parents and the parents can still hire them tutors and or stay home teaching the math at home. They still have all those resources. And the only thing that had the poor kids even slightly keep up with those kids was public school. Right. The idea that like everybody goes to public school, so it's this equalizer. Well, guess what? If you don't teach the freaking math in public school, it's no longer an equalizer. Now it is a, you know, it's an engine of inequality because the people who have parents who will teach the math or hire someone to teach the math will be the kids who grew up knowing all the math while the poor kids will just get completely screwed in terms of how much math they know. So you're actually hurting equity in the name of helping equity because you're essentially underlying this idea of closing achievement gaps, blah, blah. I think what's really happening is a lot of teachers have just decided that poor kids or, or, you know, whoever they don't like black kids, whoever the, the, they, you know, they think they're uneducable. They think, Oh, these people, you, they can never be taught anything. Their brains don't work. So we're not going to educate them. So the only thing we can do to close achievement gaps is to take the, the, you know, kids who are killing it in math and just stop them from killing. So then we'll have more equity, but we won't because the kids still have parents at home. Yeah. It is interesting. When did we move from equality to equity? Cause it feels like those are, are often in tension. Well, we used to call those equality of opportunity and equality of outcome. And I guess yeah. people just, you know, had to write something shorter for Twitter. So they renamed equality of opportunity equality and they renamed equality of outcome equity. Yeah. And so we've been arguing about those for a very, very long time but we just used, invented the new words recently. Yeah. You close the piece by just talking about how, you know, progressives should be more discerning when um, just agreeing with everyone who's a progressive and they should be pushed back against these, these ideas that some people promulgate. And that's a bit of a segue to your, and maybe we'll close with this, your, your other piece, which is uh, liberalism is losing the information war. 
because it's refusing to fight. Can you talk right. about uh, what, what you were trying right. to do in this piece? Right. So um, if you look back to World War II, you see uh, that the Roosevelt administration was producing tons of what we would now call propaganda. They had all these educational films and whatever, educational, right? Educational films saying, we believe in freedom of speech. The Nazis do not believe in freedom of speech. That is why America must prevail. You know, it's shit like that, right? And so often it was more or less true. Sometimes it wasn't true. Like they're like, you know, the imperial Japanese all believe the emperor is a living God and will do whatever he say. And then like, no, I mean, you know, the, the Japanese conquest was very, very bottom up, right? Regular Japanese people wanted to go conquer China. And so it wasn't, they weren't just like these mindless robotic slaves of the emperor, like they were depicted in the, in the films there. So sometimes they got stuff wrong. But the point was they made this, this, even though they, they said some bullshit and they got some stuff wrong, everything, everybody does, you know, even you and I do once in a while. Uh, they, they made the case very forcefully for what America believes in, why we're fighting these guys, what matters to fight for, and what the consequences could be if we don't fight. So, you know, there was this scene where they showed, you know, if the Nazis take Europe and the Japanese take Asia, then eventually they come and the arrows of a thing, you know, come and destroy America. And then, like, Iowa's the last. And it's like, oh. And then, and so... um Maybe that would have happened, maybe not, right? It's kind of unrealistic. More likely they would have gotten nukes and nuked us or something, right? Or uh, the point is that they said, here are the consequences if we don't fight. Here's what we're fighting for. We're fighting for pluralism. We're fighting for, you know, freedom and, and blah, 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 racial equality, uh, you know, or where everybody, everybody in America, you know, regardless of race can enjoy their rights and freedoms and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, unlike the Axis countries. So we made the case. The government made the case. They hired famous film directors and produced these things that you could then go watch. And, um, and at the, right, and at the same time, they used censorship. If Hollywood tried to make movies that said, you know, that America was bad, they just not, wouldn't approve your script. And so they censored stuff as well. Now, I don't necessarily, I don't agree that that was necessarily the right decision, right? Um, dissent, more dissent should have been allowed. Censorship, that was violating the First Amendment when they did that. Um, but I do think that the production of this propaganda, you can call it propaganda if you want, but really it's just explaining the government's position, you know, to the people. And I feel like that's a good thing. The government should explain this position to the people, even if that involves hiring some movie director to do something or hiring some TikTokers. I don't know what you'd, what you'd do in the modern day exactly to, to do some analog of this, but I think you, you should. The Biden administration, you know, Biden will get up there and make a speech that only a few people hear and they'll issue some White House statements, blah, blah, blah. But primarily, they just stand back and just let the pro-Biden people work, go on their own, work on their own. No, I think we need more active measures. We need the government, you know, we, we're... we're Supporting Ukraine, right? But we're not at war in Ukraine. We are not. And yet you get a ton of people who run around saying, we're at war in Ukraine. Why are we at war? Why are we fighting them? We're not. And yet all these people run around and say that we are. Well, the government needs to say, we are not at war. 
which is exactly what it did during Lend-Lease in 1941. They said, we are not at war. We're supporting this country so that it doesn't get conquered with material, but we are not at war. Where can Biden say this? Where can the government stress this? Where can the government push back against all these people who say, we're at war in Ukraine. It's our war. Because, you know, the point is that there's zero cost to saying the dumbest shit on social media or to liking and retweeting the dumbest shit, you know, so giving approval to the dumbest shit. There's zero cost, zero cost of bullshit. The government needs to push back against this. And you can say, well, okay, what if it was the Trump government? Should they do it? Yes. Yes. The Trump government should absolutely do this. Make your damn case to the people, right? Make your case. In terms of censorship, I don't favor, obviously I don't favor censorship and it's against the First Amendment and it was bad that we did it for a long time. But, but, there's always a but, right? Um, but we're dealing with a situation where TikTok is controlled by the Communist Party of China through the Communist Party's control uh, you know, of um, TikTok's parent company, ByteDance. And they can, the CCP can basically call it ByteDance and tell them to do anything they want. ByteDance changes the, the algorithm of TikTok. And suddenly TikTok is showing you, you know, 10 anti-Ukraine videos to every one pro-Ukraine video or 10, you know, anti-Taiwan videos to one, every one pro-Taiwan video. And if China ever invades Taiwan, you can absolutely bet that TikTok is going to be showing you 10 anti-Taiwan videos for every one pro-Taiwan video. It will happen. And I say our government needs to stop that, ban TikTok, or force it to be sold to an American company where they can, you know, make sure that that kind of thing doesn't happen, or they there's no pressure on them to make that thing happen, right? To 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 tip the algorithm toward pro-China, anti-Taiwan views, ban TikTok, or force it to sell to an American company. And we've been talking about this forever, and we haven't done it yet because there keeps getting pushback from this person and that person, and people ultimately like, ah, oh, it's just a bunch of like dancing kids on video. Who cares? You know, it's not worth going to bat for, but it is. And I think that the Gaza war is making people start to realize it. So I don't think we should censor, but I do think we should prevent foreign governments from maintaining a chokehold on crucial social media that America watches. And, you know, there's this idea that our government should simply stand back as this neutral party in the marketplace of ideas and just kind of be this neutral arbiter while everyone else fights it out. Free speech, yay. Which means you have the government of China versus like, you know, a couple fucking professors and grad students in their spare time. And the government of China is like, America is causing the war in Ukraine. And then, you know, like a couple little professors like, well, well no, it's not. You know, here's some history lessons about why Russia invaded. Like three likes, you know, and then Chinese government sponsored stuff is like, America evil. No, <laughs> our government needs to put a stop to that. That is why we have a government. It is not simply to stand back and be a neutral arbiter in the marketplace of ideas. You are not simply the janitor of the marketplace of ideas. U.S. government, you know, you must ensure a level playing field by stopping China from controlling our most important social media with its messaging. Especially when they don't allow our social media in China. Uh, <laughs> that, that feels not like the all. easiest lo logic to get behind. Yeah, it's like it's it's like liberalism is going to fight autocracy with like both hands tied behind its back. Like, do we really want to give the future to, um, you know, totalitarian countries? 
by saying, okay, totalitarian countries, you can control your information sphere as much as you want at home, and then you can control ours too, and it's fine. We're just going to do nothing about it. Stop. Re reciprocity. Yeah, re reciprocity <laughs> feels like the easiest logic to ban TikTok with. Just, hey, they don't allow it. Yes. Like, it's, yeah. Yes. And people, you know, a lot of people in the tech world have been screaming their heads off about this for quite a while. And people in D.C. need to listen. You know, people in D.C., you know, they've got a lot of like lunches to go to with lobbyists and whatever. And they need to listen to this. What do you think, Eric? I want to know what you think about banning TikTok. Like, I'm not an expert on this. What do you think? I, I, I think we should absolutely ban it. I mean, I, 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 um, I'm, I'm buddies with Jacob Helberg, who's, who's been on this uh, ban TikTok, you know, page for for a while now. I mean, and especially having seen, you know, sort of the Israeli-Palestinian um, sort of, you know, sort of perception that TikTok has has engendered. Um, but even before that, I mean, there's a number of, of of reasons. One is just on the sort of aspect of reciprocity alone. If they don't allow Facebook or Twitter or ours to be in China, why would we allow theirs? if we're not happy with the product and TikTok is addicting our teens and it's getting them into ideologies that are pretty scary and often anti-American. And it's, it's, it's unclear at to what degree China is putting its thumb on the scale. Um, because what, what, you know, there are reports that what Chinese people see on TikTok is right. very different than what us, you know, Americans see on TikTok. We know they're doing there. We know they're putting their thumb on the scale. Yeah, why, why wouldn't they, right? Do we need to know how much? Because we know they're <laughs> going to do it in a, the event of a Taiwan war. Yeah, exactly. And that is like mind control of Gen Z, right? I mean, or, you know, a, a wide swath of our population that is voting. And so it's um, it's pretty scary. Yeah, w why not just nationalize it or have our own version? You know, people are scared of, uh, you know, what it does to the, you know, creators or, you know, people's jobs, et cetera. But we could just create a new one, um, and uh, you know, India did it right, or India India successfully banned TikTok. Um, so, yeah, I don't I don't see what the what the holdup is. Why aren't we doing it? it? Seems seems obvious. Yeah. Anyway, there's our policy conclusion for the day. <laughs> yeah, let, let's uh, let's wrap on that. And next week, also, we'll, I think uh, TikTok's boring. Ban it. That's a good yeah. another good reason to ban. It. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let, let's uh, n next week we'll maybe get into the, the China. You wrote a good piece on China, and we'll have the results from Xi's, uh, you know, coming into San Francisco, and uh, yeah, whatever your your pieces are for for next week. But oh, let's, oh uh, you're one of the people who pronounces it G. Or oh, am G. I wrong? <laughs> you're one of those people. You pronounce it G. Yeah. How, how do I pronounce it? Yeah, again? no, it's it's like it's it's more like uh, well, it's either normally we just say she, like you know, oh, right. she. Like he, she, right? Yeah. But then you can, it's, it's actually, it's, it's almost closer to C. It's like oh. she, <laughs> C, you know, it's like, it's like halfway between C and she. Wow. Well, um, but there's no je, you know? Yeah. I, I know we talk about how competent anyway, he is. I was wondering, Noah. cause I hear a lot of people that I hear a lot of, we do. I, I, yes, yes. And I, I don't know why, like a lot of everyone I know in tech has started pronouncing it G. <laughs> I'm, I'm fighting the good fight against it. I don't know. But he also, he sucks. Yeah, he does suck. That said, he did clean up San Francisco, <laughs> which is something uh, no one else has been able to do. <laughs> Someone had to do it. Someone, now we're Singapore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. At least for, for a couple Singapore weeks. for a week. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
Wait, awesome. does this last for a couple weeks? I thought it was only one week. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm getting uh, too optimistic. Um, oh, dang. Let's, yeah, uh, I... l- l- let's wrap on that. Uh, Noah, always, uh, always a pleasure. Until next time. Until next time. Hey, everyone. Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.